What is anarcho-capitalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with David Friedman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is David Friedman. While David began his academic career in physics and earned his PhD in physics from the University of Chicago, he is chiefly known for his scholarly contributions to economics and law. He's the author of five books of nonfiction, as well as some novels. To name two examples on the nonfiction side, David's The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to Radical Capitalism, is where he argues that an economic analysis of impact of state action points to an anarchist conclusion. In Law's Order, What Economics Has to Do with Law and Why It Matters, David shows how directing the law to seek economic efficiency can lead to the achievement of justice. David, welcome back to The Curious Task. Happy to be here. And so, David, as you know, we base each episode on a theme and a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today for you is, what is anarcho-capitalism? So, especially for those familiar with you and your work on this, they know that uh, you have a lot to say about this and there's a lot to get into. Um, So I would like to start with this pillar. There seems to be a different version of what anarcho-capitalism is, depending on who you ask. And that's what makes this conversation so interesting. So when you say anarcho-capitalism, what do you mean? That's really two different questions. One of them is what defines anarcho-capitalism, and a different thing is what do I think it would be like, how it would work. So for the first question, I think it means a society that does not have a government and does coordinate largely by voluntary transactions, by more or less the sort of normal mechanisms of private property and trade and such. Uh, Now, that would be consistent with a society where most firms were workers' co-ops, say. That would be one possible variant of it, though I don't think it's the most likely one. Uh, And that also pushes you into the question of how you define a government, which we can go into if you like, but it's something that I've got thoughts about. But in any case, from my standpoint, that's that's what anarcho-capitalism is. And then there are disagreements about things such as uh, where would the legal system come from? Where would the laws being privately enforced come from? I think all anarcho-capitalists, probably all anarcho-capitalists, certainly most anarcho-capitalists, assume there will be some mechanism for enforcing some kind of law, some way in which you don't just get to take my stuff without anything happening. But you could imagine a variety of different mechanisms for that. Uh, I suppose the simplest one would be a society of virtuous libertarians where the enforcement was entirely by moral pressure, which does not strike me as very plausible. But that would still be anarcho-capitalism because there'd be no government and there would be private property and trade and such. And the particular mechanisms that I've described are ones in which you have private firms that sell the service of protecting people's rights and settling their disputes. Uh, Almost everybody chooses to be a customer of one such firm. That raises the obvious problem of what happens if there's a conflict between people who are customers of different firms. And my answer is that any firms whose customers are likely to get into conflict will agree in advance on a private court, an arbitrator, since uh, settling it that way is much less expensive than fighting each other. Uh, 
that then the laws being enforced are part of the product that the private that the private court is selling uh, to its customers, which are the rights enforcement agencies, and that will be a market outcome in my version. Uh, that will be. I have arguments about what it would be like, and arguments suggest that it will tend to be pretty libertarian law, but that's not part of the definition. So that from my standpoint, if you had the institutions I've described, uh, but some of the rules were ones that I disapproved of or thought violated rights, it would still be anarcho-capitalism, just an anarcho-capitalism that wasn't working very well. Uh, and I guess the most, at least the the other version I'm most familiar with is Murray Rothbard's version. And if I understand it correctly, and I don't swear that I that I do, he imagines that the legal system will be worked out by libertarian philosophers, maybe legal philosophers, that they will figure out what the law ought to be, and everybody will then enforce that law. Uh, and from his standpoint, I think if the rules being enforced don't follow what he regards as the morally correct rule, I'm don't in particular enforce a non-initiation of coercion, then the system isn't anarcho-capitalism. So that would be a difference between us, I think, in how we define anarcho-capitalism. I think of it as a set of institutions, which I hope would produce a libertarian result, which I think I have reason to expect to produce a libertarian result. But if they don't, it's still anarcho-capitalism. And, and you mentioned something as you were talking, you said, if we if we want to get into it, we can. And I do want to get into it. You were saying this this also sort of raises the question of what we really mean by what a what a government is, I suppose. Could, could you get a little bit more into that? Sure, sure. The initial problem is that I think pretty nearly everything that governments do has at some time or place been done by institutions we don't think of as governments. Uh, that would include making war, for example, that as best I can tell, the Norse armies that ravaged Anglo-Saxon England were basically entrepreneurial projects, not national armies, uh, that some war leader with a good reputation would say, hey, let's all go invade England and maybe we can grab some land or maybe they'll pay us to go away or we can get some loot. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that, are, that, that governments do, but it's not a government. Uh, so my answer, my short answer, uh, which was in the first edition of Machinery of Freedom, is that a government is an agency of legitimized coercion. And I then tried to explain that I was using both legitimized and coercion in a special sense, that what I meant by coercion was the sort of thing that people in that society thought of as a rights violation. And what I meant by legitimized was that people did not respond to it as they would normally respond to a rights violation. So uh, in the third edition, by which time I think I understood this ideas a little bit better, although it's the same ideas, uh, what I was arguing was that part of the way societies work is through a network of mutually recognized commitment strategies that essentially... My The simple model for this is territorial behavior in animals. So if you have a territorial animal, he somehow marks the territory he's claiming. And then I like to say turns a switch in his brain. I have no idea what the real mechanics are, such that if a trespasser of his species and in some case of his gender comes onto his territory, he will fight and fight more desperately the farther into the territory the trespasser comes. 
unless the trespasser is much stronger, a fight to the death is a loss for both parties. So if the trespasser realizes that the defender has committed himself that way, he will usually back off. And that's really a form of private property, a very primitive form of private property in non-human species. And then my argument is that the human version of that is that we all have a picture of what are the what are our rights, meaning what are the things that if people try to do to us, we are willing to bear unreasonably large costs in order to stop them. Unreasonably large doesn't mean infinite. But if you imagine uh, somebody, someone grabs a child's toy and goes running away from you, child's toy that belongs to you and your kid, you chase after him, even though you know that the value of the toy is considerably less than the cost of getting into a fight. Uh, and that's a very simple example of you having committed yourself to bear substantial costs in response to what you see as crossing your lines, as, as violating your rights. So it's like territorial behavior, except that the territory isn't, isn't just geographical. The territory is defined by. So then what a government is, from my standpoint, is an institution against which people have dropped that commitment strategy. So if a private employer tells you, uh, you are going to work for me for the next few days for the, the following uh, wage and you don't have the option of saying no, you will regard that as a rights violation and you are willing to bear considerable costs to stop it from working. If you get a notice of jury duty, however, which is the same thing, you will not respond that way. Jury duty is, after all, temporary slavery, very temporary, not very uh, unpleasant slavery, but nonetheless, it is something which you would not go along with a private employer uh, doing. Similarly, uh, if somebody seizes your property, you will normally fight pretty hard against that, but not if it's eminent domain, not if it's income tax. Uh, so then I think that the defining characteristic of a government is not necessarily that people believe its actions are legitimate. That would be one reason it might happen. But it might also be that people say, look, it's too powerful for me to fight. Everybody else knows that it's too powerful for me to fight. So the fact that I give in to the government doesn't mean I'll give in to them. And therefore, it doesn't lose me the reputation of somebody who you shouldn't steal stuff from. So I think that's a reasonably simple way of thinking of what the characteristics of the government are. And then in an anarcho-capitalist system, I would say in any anarchic, anarchic system, there are no institutions that have those characteristics. So that would be my answer to that set of questions. I'd like to push push forward further into one of the pillars you brought up as well, because uh, although there's not a government in that sense, nevertheless, as you mentioned, there will be sort of systems of uh, justice and security and so on. I think yes. you outlined that very well, uh, the general idea. But I always think, and I've seen you do this before, I think either in a, in a talk or or, uh, or um, in videos online. And I think just here would be nice if maybe we you could take us through an example because I find, especially for those listening to this the first time, it might, it might help. Uh, like in, if we imagine this anarcho-capitalist society, you know, uh, let's say someone breaks in and steals my TV or steals something important to me. Who am I yeah. calling? Maybe just work through what could, what that sure. world could look like. Sure. Uh, somebody steals my television. 
I inform my rights enforcement agency of, that someone stole my television. My rights enforcement agency, perhaps as part of their services, has installed a video camera in my living room, which uh, observed the person walking out the door. Uh, they have face recognition software so they can figure out that you're the person who stole my television. Uh, and so they send a message to you telling you that they would appreciate it if you would return my television and you think that they, they think you owe them some moderate set of, sum of money for their trouble in finding you. And you respond that you did not steal my television. You do have a television as it happens, but it's one that you bought secondhand at a yard sale recently. And no, you don't have any record of that, but it's none of their damn business. Uh, and their response is that if you're not willing to provide any evidence that it's not your television, by the way, here's the video of you walking out the door with it. Uh, we are going to send uh, four big, strong men to your door tomorrow to pick up the television, whether you like it or not. And you reply, ah, but I too have a rights enforcement agency and I will call them up. And if four thugs show up at my door to steal my television set, they will send five brave defenders of the right uh, to help me keep my television set. And that's the point at which various people such as Ayn Rand say, all right, that means it'll break down into warfare. And my response is that warfare is expensive. You have to pay hazard pay, that probably your customers don't like to have their front yard turned into a free fire zone. So a much more likely solution is that my rights enforcement agency gets in touch with your rights enforcement agency and says, we've got a problem, and they agree on arbitration. But of course, this is a problem that's going to keep happening. So instead of their getting in touch with them at that point, what's actually more likely to happen is that at some point, once it became clear that their customers might have problems with my customer, with, with, with your customers, uh, they agreed, they, they found a private court that would arbitrate such disputes. Uh, they both agreed to use that private court and to accept its judgment. Now, the fact they agreed to you might say it doesn't matter because after all, there's no government to enforce contracts, but they're repeat players. Uh, they're controlled by what's sometimes referred to as the discipline of constant dealings. Uh, and each of them knows that if the first time they lose the arbitration, they refuse to go along, then the other, the other rights enforcement agency won't accept arbitration when it goes against them and they're back having to fight each other and they'll lose all their customers to more reasonable people. That's the basic story, as I've told it uh, multiple times. And and I think, and perhaps this is going to, my next question here is going to um, dip into some other work that you've done on other legal systems and so on and so forth. But I think some, some people might say like, okay, well, that's a very... Um, like when we think of calling rights enforcement agencies and so on and so forth, I think people think of that as almost parallel to calling the police that reflects very much the lives that most of us are used to in North America, right. for example, in the modern period. Um, when it comes to sort of you imagining an anarcho-capitalist structure society, um, I gather from your other work as well that you don't think that's always necessarily the way that that things could uh, could happen or that it, that they've even have happened in history. It's not always institutions. It could be communities, local elders. And so I think there's a lot of ways different disputes seem, be. seem to be, be resolved. Uh, I'm an economist and the natural model for me is a model in which these are firms selling services. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. The uh, 
probably the closest thing that I know of in the real world would be the traditional Somali, northern Somali system. And that was one in which rather than rights enforcement agencies, you had coalitions. Uh, and it was it, it was an interesting and, and sort of complicated system because there were any individual would be a member of a set of nested coalitions. And these coalitions were normally determined by kinship, but could also be determined by contract. So the lowest level would be basically the descendants of your grandfather in the paternal line, uh, the agnotic, your agnotic kinship. And but you would also be a member of a coalition that that's a part of, which would include the descendants of your great grandfather in the paternal line and so forth up. And if you didn't actually have enough uh, cousins of the relevant sort to make a satisfactory coalition, you might instead form it by contract. You might instead say, all right, here is a bunch of people who agree that they will be part of a coalition. And what does that mean? It means that if somebody violates your rights, they agree to, uh, if necessary, fight for you. If you violate somebody's rights uh, and uh, it is agreed that you have that you owe damages, they will pay part of the damages. And if someone violates your rights and it's agreed that 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 they owe you damages, they will collect some of those damages. So that was the way that system worked. Uh, I have a chapter on it in my book, Legal Systems, very different from ours. You can find a link to a late draft of that book that's webbed for free uh, on my webpage. Uh, but that would be one such system. And I'm sure there are other, other possible ones uh, that in that system, you didn't have permanent arbitrators, but you had customary ways of getting, of, of, of creating a local court that would rule on the uh, on the question by some mix of traditional law and Islamic law, since almost everybody in Somalia in Somalia was Muslim, uh, and so that would be one example. But but as a, as an economist, I find it easier to think in terms of markets and market structures right. and uh, explicit contracts and so forth. Right, right. That makes sense. And and some might say, and it seems that those who raise this kind of objection, there's a spectrum between they're just raising it flippantly, but there's also some people that have a well thought out objection that comes down in this vein, which is that at some point, no matter what system either we envision or that we find historical evidence of and so on and so forth, um, there's a natural tendency for a group of people in that system to basically create what we more or less might recognize today as some sort of state or at least a group of people claiming that there's a geographical sort of, you know, this yep. is our territory territory, we have the monopoly of violence, and so on and so forth. When when people say, well, this is all going to tend toward that anyway, would you have a response to that? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any universal rule of that sort. I think as in other markets, you sometimes get natural monopolies and sometimes you don't. You have the differing economies of scale. And if you are in a society where various characteristics of technology and society and so forth mean that a larger rights enforcement agency can always do a much better job than a smaller one. You then might end up with a single rights enforcement agency, which will be strongly tempted to stop respecting its customers' rights once it's got a monopoly. Might might or might not, but that, that would be a likely, likely result. 
if I think of historical examples, uh, Saga period Iceland, which was the first of these societies that I learned about, uh, which is what I think of as semi-stateless because there was a single law code and legislature, but enforcement was all private. Uh, and in that system, it lasted for about a third of a millennium, but there was a shift, I suppose, after about the first 200 years towards uh, increasing concentration of power. And the last 50 years or so were a sort of an on and off civil war where I think part of what they were fighting over was which, which uh, coalition, which group was going to end up as being the government of Iceland. Uh, I'm not sure if they put it that way, but that's what it sort of looks like. On the other hand, uh, that uh, the Strulung period, which is the, the civil war, starts, I suppose, a bit more than 200 years after the system is set up. The U.S. system broke down into civil war less than a century after it was set up. Uh, so in that sense, you could argue it wasn't really stable. And in fact, what came out of that civil war was noticeably different than what went into it in terms of political institutions. Uh, the Somali system, I don't think we know enough to know how old it was. Uh, what actually happened there uh, was that uh, Somali, the, the Somalis were uh, a good deal less uh, less economically developed uh, than European powers. So you ended up with a situation where northern Somalia was theoretically a protectorate of the British and southern Somalia of the Italians. And the British, as far as I can tell, mostly let the system work by as it had traditionally worked. They had a few people there. And, and the only point at which they got seriously involved, which may fit what you're saying, was there was a religious leader who seems to have been trying to create a state of Somalia. Uh, and the British organized the opposition to him and he was defeated. Uh, but then what eventually happened, but this is in modern times, was that the British and the Italians decided that they would create a country called Somalia combining the two areas, northern and southern, that they had been in, in, in charge of, so to speak. That was set up as a modern centralized democratic system. It pretty rapidly broke down into a military dictatorship. The military dictatorship got into a war with Ethiopia. Uh, the Soviet Union, which had initially supported the Somalis, switched sides and supported the Ethiopia, and things went very badly. The military dictator got assassinated. And things started sliding back, presumably towards something like the traditional system, except that the U.S. and the U.N. decided that Somalia had to have a government. And we've been trying to impose a government on them ever since. So I would have said that the traditional system had probably existed for some centuries, but I don't know how long. Uh, and I don't think it had shown any particular tendency but of the sort you're saying. But I don't think we know enough about it to be sure. Uh, if I think of other examples... Uh, the Comanche Indians were an anarcho-capitalist society, uh, less organized than what I've described, uh, but there really was no government. And I think that continued until they were eventually destroyed, defeated and largely destroyed by the U.S., which had an enormous advantage in population and technology over them. Uh, 
what's impressive about the Comanche is how well they did. The fact that they managed to, the fact that the problem for both Mexico and the U.S. was defending against the Comanche, not the Comanche defending against them for quite a long time, although eventually uh, the U.S. did in fact defeat them. Uh, not sure I can think of other ones that I know enough about, uh, but those would be a number of examples of uh, the anyway. So, so I don't think there's a a clear rule, but I don't think you can guarantee stability. And I have uh, I, I have discussions in one chap, maybe I think maybe two chapters of the first edition and a couple of chapters of the third edition of machinery of ways in which the system might not work, of ways in which it might break down. Uh, and also in the third edition of ways in which it might end up producing non-libertarian law. So I'm certainly not a, uh, a utopian. I don't think that uh, anarcho-capitalism would work under all circumstances, uh, but I think that it would work under many circumstances and that if it worked, it would be likely to be a more attractive society than alternative institutions. Right. And those those were very interesting examples. And before we shift gears to some other stuff, I have one more sort of question in this vein. Um, I think uh, a lot of people might be convinced by the discussion of like how an individual might, for instance, subscribe to uh, like, you know, a rights protection firm or, or something like that, especially at the individual level. Um, a lot of people, especially in classical liberal circles, sort of identify one of the reasons that a government is necessary is for things like defending defense for invaders or war and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, do, you have, do you have any interesting thought experiments or things you could share about that where someone can envision uh, where someone you know, yeah. might be thinking, hey, I understand individual protection, they, but what about our whole community? Yeah. But but that's only a part of a much more general problem. And the general problem is what economists refer to as market failure. And calling it market failure makes it sound as though it's a feature of markets, but it isn't particularly. It's a feature of human interaction. That market failure, I think, is best thought of as situations in which individual rationality does not produce group rationality in which even if each person correctly acts in his own interest, the, the, the people are worse off than if they'd all done something else. And the national defense is one example. It's what economists call a public good, which means that it is something where the producer cannot control who gets it. That the normal way we expect to get stuff produced is that if you want the bread I'm baking, you've got to pay me for it. And if you don't pay me for it, you don't get it. But if you want to listen to my radio broadcast, I have no way of keeping you, at least if it's over the air, you can do it by cable. I have no way of keeping you from listening to it if you haven't paid for it. And that means that the mechanism for, uh, pay, for, for, for paying to produce public goods is less reliable, less less can be expected to produce things worth producing than the mechanism for private goods. National defense is a public good. Uh, and there are a number of ways you could imagine it being produced. And I got one chapter in the first edition and one chapter in the third edition. I refer to it as the hard problem. Uh, it's not the only public good involved. There are other examples. Air pollution, for example, would be another problem that would be underproduced and that is control of air pollution. Uh, and I haven't. I have some other other examples, but 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 national defense has the characteristic that if you get that wrong, your system collapses. So it's in a sense the most serious. Uh, and 
we do, in fact, produce quite a lot of public goods privately. Uh, my standard example is tipping at restaurants or taxis, that if you go to a restaurant that you're not a regular customer of, giving a tip to the waiter when the waiter's done a good job uh, provides no benefit to you. If you're a regular customer, it means that the waiters will like you and be more careful to treat you well. But And if you're a, going in a taxi cab, you're unlikely to ever see the taxi cab driver again. Nonetheless, a large amount of money is given in tips. And that's a matter of people having the feel that they ought to do it. It's sort of what decent people do. Uh, and valuing, to some degree, getting good service. And similarly, you could get some amount, but how much one doesn't know, uh, out of people who say, I'd like to have our country protected. Uh, I like this in our capitalist system, so I'm willing to voluntarily donate money to fund national defense. So that would be one way it could be done. And one, one approach that I discussed in the third edition that I found sort of interesting is to take advantage of the fact that a lot of people play at war. That if you think about paintball, or the one that I'm familiar with is Society for Creative Anachronism, where people fight with swords and shields, uh, and uh, other things of that sort, so you could imagine a system where you have a lot of people who as a hobby train for war. You have a small number of professionals. The professionals will be the referees when the hobbyists have war games with each other as, as, as sort of a form of sport, uh, as paintball does now. Uh, and they will be uh, the sort of top level organizers if you actually have to fight. And I have a discussion in a substack and one of my blog posts of a real world example someone pointed out to me in Estonia, where basically training for guerrilla warfare is a popular sport. And they have contests of various sorts in that. And I worked out that if you had the same proportion of the US population uh, doing it as the Estonians do, that would give you a volunteer military about twice the size of the US military about 4 million people. Now, of course, there's no reason to assume it would scale, but that gives you the idea that, that, that one could imagine uh, doing substantial amounts. Uh, in the case of the US, we don't need very much of a military, even though we talk as though we do, that, that the, neither the Canadians or the Mexicans are a very serious threat, and we're pretty far from everybody else. Uh, so, what the public good problem tells you, market failure problem in general, tells you that if national defense is worth uh, $100 billion to you, you probably won't be able to raise $100 billion because people can free ride on other people's expenditures. But you might be able to raise $10 billion and that might be enough. Uh, so that's that would be the basic answer. And I, I, I have some other things in, in various other things I've written, but but that's... The basic idea is that imperfect does not mean failure. And whether imperfect is imperfect enough so that it means failure is going to depend on how big your threat is. So if I were uh, one of the Baltic countries, I'd be really worried because they've got a large, aggressive neighbor uh, who likes conquering people when they can and is trying to conquer Ukraine at the moment. Uh, so that would require a substantially larger resources to 
uh, defend than for the US at the present or quite a lot of other places which don't really need very much defense. Uh, so I guess that would be the, the, the basic story I would tell. And I think that the US has gotten itself into a kind of foreign policy in which we are trying to see everybody in the world and to put down the dangerous to us in advance. And I think that ends up getting into a lot more conflicts than you have to. And actually, I think that's a great place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Friedman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Friedman today. So, David, I think the first half was great. I'm going to switch gear into some other topics here. So, um, some say there's an important distinction between what we might call a more natural rights approach that leads people to justifying, number one, and also thinking on how anarcho-capitalism would work versus a more consequentialist or legalist approach. Um, Before I go further with that, because I know that's a whole thing, first, do you accept that distinction flat out? I think it is certainly a distinction with regard to arguments for anarcho-capitalism, that one can argue for it on the grounds that it is morally, that that the state is is immoral, basically, is a violation of rights, or one can argue it on the grounds that an anarcho-capitalist institution would produce more of the outcomes we like than a, than a state would. Uh, I suspect that there are, I'm not sure there are any anarcho-capitalists who don't really believe in both. Uh, that is to say, I think most people who support anarcho-capitalism on the whole feel as though governments collecting taxes and, and, and drafting people and so forth is a bad thing. Uh, and I suspect most of them also believe that having governments do things and collect taxes and such makes the society worse off, results in people being poorer and less well-educated and so forth and so on. So I think that the distinction is a clear distinction in what the reasons are that people offer for anarcho-capitalism, but it's a less clear distinction in terms of why people are actually anarcho-capitalists. I don't think I've yet met a libertarian who would say, yes, indeed, non-initiation of force is obviously the right right rule and we have to have it. Unfortunately, it will lead to a miserable society where people are poor and where there's a high crime rate. Uh, But we can't collect taxes for a government. Therefore, we can't have police. Therefore, we can't prevent this horrible society. And, you know, logically speaking, if people say, well, you know, it, I believe in rights and that's that's it. Uh, that should 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 send it, end it. But in fact, by a curious coincidence, the people who believe in the non-initiation of coercion also believe that it has good consequences. 
And and I've I've done some research on 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 uh, there's been there's some videos online for instance where it's either you in a debate or other message forums and so on where people talk about this stuff. People often tend to use you as sort of a figurehead for the more consequentialist side, especially citing mm-hmm. the machinery of freedom and so on and so forth. But I don't think and, and and I find sometimes as you were exactly as you were saying, I think it's that some sort of clear cut distinction is sometimes a little bit unfair. Although of course you're very interested in a lot of the the legal side and what we can call the consequentialist discussion. I just want to put it to you directly as well, because I don't think I actually ever seen someone ask you this directly, which is you you're obviously as as well personally have a, a principled objection to the government where whether or not it's not that you take the quote NAP approach. Um it just seems like and you correct me if I'm wrong, I, of course, that you just don't think that's as interesting of a route of discussion at times. But it isn't but not, not, not interesting. I don't think I have as good arguments because I don't think that there are as good arguments for moral philosophy as there are for economics. Uh, I think there is a reason why philosophers still pay attention to Aristotle and physicists don't, uh, and economists don't either. Uh, that, so first, I think I have better arguments from the consequentialist side. But also, I don't believe in the strong version of the uh, rights-based thing. That is to say, I would say that if the system doesn't work, if having anarcho-capitalism means that people are poor and miserable and all the rest of it, well, then maybe uh, the best we can do is to have a government that only steals a little money. Uh, So in that sense... uh, from my standpoint, as my philosophical position, would be that rights violation is a bad thing, but it's not an infinitely bad thing. And therefore, if by violating rights a little bit, I can get very large benefits in other terms, I should do it. And sort of, I guess, one of my standard examples, which was, I think, originated by Bill Bradford, is the story where you fall off your 10th floor balcony by good luck, you catch hold of the flagpole of the ninth floor balcony, and you're working hand over hand towards the balcony to get up to to save yourself when the owner of that apartment comes out and says, you do not have permission to use my flagpole. And if you really take seriously the strong rights-based position, it looks like you have to drop, have to let go of the flagpole and die. And I'm not sure... There might be somebody who would do that, but I suspect very few people would do that. And I am not sure how many people would even claim they ought to do that. So that would be a case where a minor violation of rights results in a very large benefit, namely not falling nine stories to your death. And it's therefore right to do it. And you should probably be willing to compensate uh, the owner of the flagpole, especially if you do any damage to it. Maybe even if you don't for your use of the flagpole. And you could say, well, that's all right. You're not really violating his rights because you compensate him. But most libertarians do not believe in eminent domain. And what you're doing is a forced sale. You don't have his permission. So from that standpoint, I would say that that I think that there are principled reasons, if you want to call it that, rights-based reasons why I prefer anarcho-capitalism. But I don't think that they are the sort of absolute uh you know, solves the question, uh, reasons that a lot of people do. 
And so when it comes to libertarians in general, especially in North America, you know, we often hear of the non-aggression principle, the NAP. Yeah. I mentioned it earlier. Um, I, I, I think that like a lot of folks, and I should say not just uh, anarcho-capitalists talk about the NAP. There's also yes. other kinds of people refer to themselves as minarchists and classical yeah. liberals and so on and so on. Um, but um, do, but it's do hard you, to see how you, you can really be a minarchist. Uh, and believe in the NAP because minarchists normally assume there'll be tax collection. And I suppose right. the exception would be Rand, and Rand does not have tax collection. But if you really push it, the problem with Rand's solution, which is that the government uh, sells the service of rights enforcement, is that the government won't be able to fund anything else if it's got to compete with other sellers of the service of rights enforcement. And Rand's response is, no, no, the government has a monopoly of retaliatory force and therefore can can make money off of it. And then that looks an awful lot like an initiation of coercion when she stops another firm, which is honestly providing retaliatory force just as carefully as the government does from, from, from operating. So I think it's, it is at least very hard I suppose you could be, in principle, a minarchist who says, all right, let us have a system where there is an oil well that belongs to somebody who really wants an anarcho-capitalist, who really wants a a minarchist system. So he's going to use the revenue from the oil well to fund the minimal government. It belongs to him, so he can do it that way. So that would involve no rights violation, but that would be a pretty extreme, pretty extreme case. Right, right, uh, yes, and and that I'm not going to follow those minarchist thing too far because that'd be a whole other thing. But it, when yeah. we refer to the anarcho capitalists yeah. who come from it from the NAP perspective, um, do you think that some of those folks uh, tend to overstate the case of how much the basic principle of the NAP can carry us as far as solving problems? I mean, you use the flagpole example. They also, they also think think that it's too that it's simpler than it is. That is to mm. say that I think it's both the case that even even where from my standpoint, it is clearly a violation of rights. That violation of rights is not infinitely bad, and therefore you might be willing to approve of it if if uh, there were enough other benefits, as in the example I just gave. Uh, but also, I think the more you think about what the content of the NAP is, the fuzzier it gets. That you know, my standard example is uh, I turn on a light in my house. You can see it from your house. That means my photons are trespassing on your property without your permission. Is that a violation of the NAP? How in principle would you decide where uh, where it is? And, you know, you somebody, you know, one of the answers is, ah, but it does no damage. And I say, well, it does no damage according to you, but the person who's you're trespassing on, you don't believe in forced sales. It's got to be his values and he gets to and, you know, nobody else gets to decide his values in the world. There are lots of standard libertarian arguments that one can use to, to show the incoherence of this. Uh, and there are other problems. There's a, there's a big problem with, with property and land because we didn't create the property and land. It's not clear what the basis is for a claim to it. And yet it's very hard to have a market society work unless you have enforceable ownership of land. So I think there are a variety of places where if you really try to think about implementing the NAP, it becomes increasingly unclear what things do or don't violate it. It's, it seems to be to me to get even more complicated and fuzzy when we leave the 
I guess, security or an initial enforcement rights discussion, let's say, and into things like uh, punishment and restitution and so on and so forth. I think yes. if I remember correctly, I saw a video, it was, it was uh, an older one, but uh, you were talking, I think you were critiquing essentially people come from the Rothbard approach. And uh, you, you, you sort of noted that someone had told you once that, oh, like, uh, there's just a certain percentage. If someone robs a certain amount of money from you, uh, they're supposed to give like, uh, you know, that money back plus Roth X Roth amount. We've solved Roth the problem. Rothbard's rule is twice. Mm. Rothbard's, Rothbard's proposal, Rothbard's claim is that if you steal $1,000 from me when we catch you, you've got to give me back $2,000. And I believe, though I am not sure, that that is the rule in rabbinic law, uh, under at least some circumstances. It's complicated. Uh, but I've never seen any argument for it. That is to say, I'm sure... I'm, Rothbard probably thought he had an argument for it, but I haven't found one. Uh, and there are obvious problems with it, since if if you happen to be in a society where robbery is hard to detect, then uh, giving back twice isn't going to be enough to deter robbery. Uh, right. And yeah, no, I think one thing that makes one less sympathetic to the idea that the NAP is a clear rule is having studied law. Uh, It'd be interesting, actually, if one could poll libertarians to see whether the ones who have gone to law school are less sympathetic with that. Because one of the things that you learn in law school, I've never been a student in law school, but I've been a professor there, so I've interacted with it a good deal, is that ideas like property and contract and all the rest are much more complicated than they seem at first. Uh, you know, when you own a piece of land, what do you own? Uh, do you own the right to forbid airplanes from flying over it? How low? Do you own the minerals underneath it? Uh, one of my standard examples of the complication is that the law in the, which state was it? Uh, maybe West Virginia. No, Pennsylvania. I think it was Pennsylvania, which was a state made largely out of coal. And the traditional property right there for land distinguish three different estates. The surface estate, which is what we normally think of as ownership of land, you can build on it. The mineral estate, which is the right to dig coal out from underneath the land. And the support estate, which is the right to have the surface supported. So if I own the surface estate and you own both the mineral estate and the support estate, I have no complaint when you dig out all of the coal and my house falls into the hole. On the other hand, if I own the surface estate and the support estate and you own the mineral estate, you can still mine coal, but you've got to leave enough uh, so that my surface doesn't doesn't fall down. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the present legal situation, but I think it was at least for a long time. But that's just a nice illustration of the fact that what you own is always a more complicated concept than than most libertarians or most other people who haven't studied law uh, imagine it to be. Yeah, and, and also the you know, for instance, like you know, what what's justifiable in the, in the instances of self defense? Uh, you know, I think I saw you, you know, and, and sort of crack a side joke in one of your talks where you said most people don't accept the fact that if I take one step onto your property, we can machine gun the other person's legs. I mean, some people yeah. might might say that's okay, but I think yeah. a lot of this seems to, from your point of view, to be stuff that you know comes from either the common law tradition or judges, and and there's a reason law exists the way it does. It seems to be your mm -hmm. point of view that a lot of people have yeah. thought of these problems and worked them out before. Yes. Yes. No, no, my, my favorite example on that, which is, 
I think a real example, though I don't know, but it was at least, I think, a story I heard, maybe a news story about somebody who was sitting at home waiting to hear who had been stealing his firewood because uh, firewood had been vanishing from his pile. He had tried to do various things to prevent it, to protect it unsuccessfully. So finally, he took one of his sticks of firewood, drilled a hole in it, put a stick of dynamite into it, and put it back on the pile. And he was waiting to hear who had been stealing his firewood. Right. And I think most of us would think that blowing somebody up is an unreasonable sanction for stealing firewood, even if he doesn't have a right to steal the firewood. Right, exactly. Um, and I'd like to shift gears into something else here. This one's actually a little bit more of a personal qu- question. I'm genuinely interested. What what led to your your interest in this topic? Was it sort of a stumble upon as you were studying and thinking about other which, things, which or did topic? you consciously which, oh anarcho capitalism? anarcho-capitalism in general and how that kind of society sure. uh, would work? Or did you consciously put your mind to that thought experiment and flesh out from there? Or did you sort of stumble oh, into no, this? No, the, the, the way it happened, uh, my when I was, what, 15 or 16, something like that, when I went to college at 16, uh, it seemed to me that I couldn't see any good argument for why governments had the right to do things that other people didn't have that the way I put it at the time is right and wrong or not made by act of Congress. And I didn't see why one had an obligation to obey law, uh, qua law, the obligation not to murder people for other reasons. And on the other hand, at the time, I thought that a society couldn't function unless people had such an obligation. And I regarded that as a puzzle and decided that I would try to obey law until I solved the puzzle, until I figured out what the right answer was. Uh, And at the time, my political view was a standard classical liberal view that you should have almost everything done by the market, but that the legal framework for the market had to be government system of law and law enforcement, basically. And that was not a very satisfactory position because that legal framework involved governments doing things, making laws that including laws that might not be morally justified. And the point at which I changed my view was when I read Heinlein's uh, novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, because that novel provided what seemed to me an internally consistent fictional picture of a society in which law and law enforcement were endogenous in which there was no government, there was no external provider, but nonetheless individuals acting in their own interest ended up producing a system of law and law enforcement, a rather informal and pretty primitive system of law enforcement. Uh, Well, a theorem is defeated by a single counterexample. So if it was possible to have a internally consistent system in which uh, law and law enforcement did not require an external source, then it couldn't be the case that they always required an external source. And that started me thinking about what in my society, which was very different from the one on the moon that Heinlein Heinlein described, what would be the equivalent. And so that was what I, what turned into machinery, the, 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 the model in machinery of freedom. So it was deliberate in that sense. I was trying to figure out how you could get the kind of society I would approve of, as it were, in modern society. Now, I did not know, I knew almost none of the stuff that I, learned in the process of doing the work that led to my legal system very different from ours book. I did not know anything about Saga Period Iceland at the time or about the Somalis. 
or Comanche or any of the rest of that. Uh, so I was really doing it sort of blank slate, trying to imagine it. And many years later, when I learned about all of those things, I, I, the way I put it was that in my first book, I had been reinventing the wheel because I had been describing a high division of labor, modern technology version of something that had existed in more primitive forms in the, in the past. But I didn't know that when I was doing it. Very interesting. I actually didn't know that you weren't very familiar with the uh, the legal system, very different from our own type stuff before you did the machine of freedom. I thought you just didn't get to writing that book yet. <laughs> no, that book came, the history of how that book got written goes back a ways, but not as far as the machinery. Uh, I was a assistant professor at VPI in the Public Choice Center at VPI with Buchanan and Tulloch and some other people. And there was a controversy at Chicago between two of the Chicago economists and two of the Chicago law and econ people, between Beckerts and Stigler on the one hand and Landis and Posner on the other. And it was Becker and Stigler, in the course of an article they had written, had argued that the standard model of law enforcement was not incentive compatible. Because, and the way I like to put their argument is imagine that you're a crook and I'm a cop and I've got the goods on you. I've got the evidence that will put you to jail. And being jailed is, from your standpoint, the equivalent to a $100,000 fine. Getting you jailed will be a gold star on my report card and will raise my lifetime income by $10,000. Well, Dragnet tells us what happens. I give the evidence to the prosecutor and you go to jail. And economics tells us what happens. Markets exist to move assets to their highest valued use. And the evidence that will get you jailed is worth much more money to you than to me. So you pay me off with something between $10,000 and $100,000 and I burn the evidence. And that means that in order for that system to work, you need another layer of uh, cops, as it were, watching the first layer and maybe a third layer watching them because it's not a system where it's immediately in the self-interest of the individual actors to act the way the system requires. And so Becker and Stigler said, well, we've got a solution to this problem. How about instead of having cops being government employees on salary, we say that when somebody provides the evidence that gets you convicted of this fine, they get the $100,000 that you pay. And presumably, I don't remember enough of the details of their article, but presumably if you can't pay a $100,000 fine, you go to jail for five years and the government says, well, five years in jail is equivalent to $100,000. So we'll pay the guy who got you, who brought you in a $100,000 reward. And on any version of this system, you can only pay, you can only buy the evidence from me at the, at what it's worth to you at the $100,000. And if you do that, you've just paid your $100,000 fine to the police force, as it were, or to the private police, uh, and we've saved the trouble of a court a court case. That was their basic argument. And uh, Landis and Posner offered some problems with this system. And I got interested reading the articles. And it occurred to me that at that point, I did know something about saga period Iceland, not a lot, but I was familiar with the sagas to some extent because of my medieval interests, which had existed well before that. And so I wrote, ended up writing two articles. Uh, one of them was an article describing Saga period Iceland with everything I could find out about it 
as in effect a real world version of the Becker-Stigler system uh, and applying it. And the other was a technical article where Landis and Posner had offered what they thought was a proof that the Becker-Stigler system could not was, was not capable of working as well as a perfectly working government system would work, that it was inherently inefficient. And it was a neat argument, but it was wrong. And I wrote an article showing that by making a small change in what the institutional rules were that they assumed, you could solve their impossibility problem and get a fully efficient system. And both of those articles were published in Chicago journals. Uh, probably, I'm not sure, either the Journal of Legal Studies or the Journal of Law and Econ, or maybe one in each. It was a long time ago. And Landis and Posner invited me to come to Chicago to visit so that we could argue at closer range. Uh, so I ended up spending uh, a year at Chicago Law School. And then they invited me to come for longer and Tulane, which is where I was in the business school at the time, wouldn't give me more of a leave. So I quit Tulane and ended up spending, I think, about eight years as a faculty fellow on a one, what had initially been a one-year faculty fellowship uh, at Chicago. And that's how I went from teaching in economics departments to teaching mainly in law schools. Uh, uh, a good deal. So the, the 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 Icelandic article I thought was a lot of fun. I learned interesting stuff, and later uh, in I remember what context I got interested in 18th century English criminal law, and that was a system where law and for, where, where prosecution was private, criminal prosecution was private, just as tort prosecution is private in our system. It was up to the victim uh, to show who would, who had stolen his horse, although enforcement was still public. Uh, so I wrote an article about that. It, it, it had a lot of interesting features that I was trying to make sense of. And then I was lazy for years. And then at a point when I'd come out to California and was teaching at Santa Clara University Law School, uh, it occurred to me that those two articles had both been a lot of fun. They'd, I'd both learned stuff and I'd been lazy for too long. And I needed some way of doing this, doing more of the same stuff. And so I needed a commitment strategy to get me to work. So I announced for the next year a seminar on legal systems very different from ours. And I then went into the library and the librarians who were nice people found, produced for me a rolling bookcase filled with books on exotic legal systems. And I went through them and found enough so that I could teach that course the next, the next year. Uh, and I then taught it every other year for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. And in the course acquired more information. Uh, my lecture notes ended up turning into chapters of a book and so forth. So that's, that's how that book came into existence. But as I say, the, even the Icelandic piece, which was the first thing of that sort, was well after I had published Machinery of Freedom. Right. Well, that's very interesting. And I have one final question for you, David, before we move mm -hmm. to our formal wrap up. And this one, so I, I saw you once noted, I think this was in a talk, it, just the way you sort of put it, I found very interesting. You said that the difference between you and your father, Milton Friedman, a widely celebrated market liberal, classical liberal, was that he thought something like anarcho-capitalism might work, but probably wouldn't. But you thought anarcho-capitalism probably would work, but might not. Now, 
obviously, unless there's something I don't know and a secret you could reveal here, it doesn't seem like you convinced uh, your father of uh, anarcho-capitalism, specifically your type of ideas. Um, and But you were around these intellectual circles at the time and obviously uh, spoke with your father quite a bit about this type of stuff, I'm sure, or at least around those types of discussions. Mm. Um, what do you actually find to be one of the most valid objections from those who considered themselves classical liberals and those types yeah. of intellectual circles yes. that you I, were challenged I don't, re- I don't remember specific arguments with him. I just remember that it was it, what the situation was was clear, and I didn't think I could prove my side of it. I didn't think he could prove his side of it. It's all sort of a judgment call kind of issue. Uh, mm. I think the strongest argument against it is that there are no modern anarcho-capitalist societies. That, uh, And that was what, what Nosek offered. Uh, at some point, there was some libertarian event at which I gave a talk whose subject was Nozick's book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, and Nozick was in the audience. And so we talked after, in the question period, we talked a bit. And he did not try to defend in that, at that context the argument that he makes in the book for in favor of essentially a minarchy. He instead offered what I thought was a stronger argument Namely, if this system really works, why do we see no examples in the modern world? Uh, I, that, that was long enough ago, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I had done my Icelandic stuff then. I may not have, so it may be just no examples. But uh, uh, and and that's that's a strong argument, but it's not a conclusive argument because things change. And my standard response to that is to imagine that it's about 1800 or maybe 1700 and somebody is proposing a really radical uh, kind model for a, for, for, a, for a society, uh, a, a democracy where everybody gets to vote, all adults, even women get to vote, uh, a society where the government collects and spends 30 or 40 percent of the national income, uh, whole bunch of features, none of which have ever existed in any society in the history of the world. And it's now the sort of standard model for developed societies. So I right. think things do change. Uh, so I don't think it is impossible. Uh, but also, it, it's also possible <coughs> that it's a system that would be stable if it was established, but that there are serious problems with establishing it. Uh, might be the case. But of course, one of the problems with establishing it is nobody believes in it. So in that sense, if it becomes more nearly a part of sort of the free information that people have, this is one of the ways you can do things, then that might get you something closer to it. With that, our time has, has wound down here. David, I'm just going to move us to our formal wrap-up here. Let me just say, we've talked about a lot, and I want to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. In each episode, we want to make sure that the guests ultimately have the last word. So as the final formal wrap-up question to you, David, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what anarcho-capitalism really is, at least in your view? In other words, if you wanted someone to take away just one, two, or a few things from our discussion today, if anything, what would you like them to take away about anarcho-capitalism? That is a system in which rights are enforced. There is law, but they are enforced by a decentralized market mechanism rather than by a centralized government and that the enforcement does not involve anybody claiming to have special rights to tax you or enslave you or anything of that sort. David Friedman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Glad to be here.
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchediak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.